Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of Muslims Doing Things. Today I have the wonderful, incredible Dr. Sahar Shafi. If you haven't seen her on Instagram, you should probably check her out. She is a periodontist, which means she does surgeries in your mouth and uh, low-key an influencer as well. And she has a really cool story that I'm really excited to share with you all today. So Sahar, why don't you you introduce you before I do? <laughs> well, thank you, first of all, for having me. I'm honestly, I'm humbled and flattered. I can never get past the fact that anyone would care to know anything about me or my career, but I think that's super awesome. So thank you. My name is Sahar Shafi, and I am a periodontal and implant surgeon. Most people don't know what that is. And so typically in conversation, I'll say, oh, it's just a type of an oral surgeon. But essentially, periodontics, peri is periphery, dont is tooth. So I deal with everything around the tooth, which are the gums and the bone. So then people ask, oh, you know, so does that mean you you do veneers and like fillings and, you know, things like that. And actually that's not the case at all. I don't touch the teeth. I strictly do surgery. So gum grafting, if you've got gums that have like receded um, or bone grafting, if you've lost bone, if you've lost a tooth, I'll do dental implants and uh, sinus augmentations and lots of fun, cool surgery inside the mouth. You know, and you're really good at what you do. And I know this because me and you know each other on a personal level. Yeah. I know what you do, but not much professionally. So I'm not going to lie. I Googled you right before this, like two minutes before the episode and came <laughs> up to your Yelp, right? Okay. <laughs> and this guy, first of all, you have incredible ratings. Uh -huh. Second of all, this guy literally was like, it's an honor to rate Sahar who did my surgery. And I'm like, an honor? Like everybody hate. I don't care what you're doing in my mouth. Like, I don't love that you're there. I'm happy you're doing it. But this guy thinks it's an honor. So you are <laughs> Clearly, very, very good. Oh, that's that's actually so sweet. I I don't ever read the Yelp reviews, but I hear they're really great. And you know, my office staff sometimes they'll like print it out and say, "Oh my God, look what this person said about you!" And it's so so honestly humbling and flattering. And it's a privilege for someone to let me into that personal space. I think the mouth is a very personal space. So for someone to even say that is just it's so sweet. You know, yeah. I, I feel that because so I like the way that people feel about their tax returns is how I feel about my teeth. Like genetically, that is an area where I've always had to put extra emphasis and effort as a result of the cards that were dealt. And I joke around with my sister. I'm like, really, if I, if anything happens to me, like release all the tax returns, release whatever you need, do not release my dental x-rays. Oh my God. <laughs> and you know, what's crazy is that I got into this profession because of my own dental experience. So I'll get into that a little bit later, but you know, I've probably experienced almost everything. I don't have a horrible dental history or anything, but I have at least experienced everything once because of some unfortunate circumstance. And so I can really speak on most things dental from a patient perspective, as well as obviously from a professional. Me too on the patient side. And honestly, also because of bizarro things like swimming into a wall while yes. playing hide and seek, like stuff like that. <laughs> and it's just anyways. So I'm really excited to dive into the next part because, you know, dentistry, dentistry is a really cool field. And I think a lot of people don't realize they could specialize in dentistry. So yeah. I would love to go through your professional path and then your personal path because you're really freaking cool on Instagram. So tell me a bit about those. 
All right. Well, so in terms of of uh, my professional path, I grew up in a very culturally strict Pakistani household. My dad was super conservative. He put a strong emphasis on our studies and our work ethic growing up. I grew up in a house where respect was tantamount to our existence. My mom taught my sister and I our ABCs and our numbers one through a hundred and taught us how to read Quran um, at a very young age. And I have an older sister, so she was teaching my older sister and I just happened to be there and I absorbed everything at a very young age. And so having my sister is like such, um, like being at such a close age with me, I think that gave us reasons to push ourselves at home and at school. Um, so like, for example, she was really physically active as a child, which made me want to be equally as physically active. She played soccer first, which made me want to play soccer, got me into sports in general. And so I think first of all, just like the foundation at home, like the sports and my home upbringing is what really molded me into the person that I am. A sports instilling confidence and essentially the ability not to give up and be held accountable. So that's essentially the foundation. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, we find that too, like whenever we hire athletes, so even at WISE, you can tell when somebody has a background as an athlete, because the way that they're team players, the way that they're coachable is like always, it always stands out in a really remarkable way. It's so true. It's so true. Being a team player, I think, and being coachable is just so important to sports and I think in life in general. So sports is one thing that, you know, if we ever have the uh, blessing of having children, I would definitely put them in sports. So that was essentially also the only freedom that I had growing up as a first generation Pakistani American uh, was playing sports. So I convinced my father that that was the only way to get into a good college is to like well-round your, to be well-rounded and have this like well-rounded resume. And so I did all the like basic things that you would do in high school to, you know, become a better um, applicant for colleges. But I also played a lot of sports. So I thought that would be my ticket out that I thought that would be my. And, and what sports? I'm trying to visualize it. What sports did you play? <laughs> I played, I started with soccer. Um, and again, that was because my sister played soccer and I was just like, oh, well, I can do that too. And then I ran track. So I'm really, really fast, like really fast. Uh, I used uh-huh. to be a sprinter. Um, so I ran the the 100 and the four by one uh, relay and I made it to state in high school. I was always the only Pakistani girl ever in these races and at these meets. But um, I was really good at that. And definitely with like five layers of tights under your shorts. And you definitely were were always, I I know that experience so well because I played soccer. And this is before hijab was like, you know, really cool. So we just would like layer and put the most ridiculous looking things on. And they would do like the belly button checks because belly button piercings were really big when I was playing soccer in middle school. I'm like, well, I can't show you my belly button. And people just look at me like I was crazy, not only for not having a belly button ring, but for not being able to show my stomach. You know, that's interesting. We didn't have belly button checks. That's something very new to me. I've never heard that before, but wow, that makes sense. Oh, every <laughs> game, every game. Oh my God. Um, and then I also played volleyball and that was just, um, that was a sport that I was not the best at on my team, but I played varsity all throughout high school. So that was one thing that I just kind of decided to play because my friends were on the team and, you know, but, you know, team sports, the soccer and the volleyball, and then having the confidence to do the solo sport, which is track and field. Um, So I, I feel like I learned a lot from that. And then college came around. And again, you know, my dad 
put a strong emphasis on education, but he was, you know, being first generation in this country with all the freedoms, he was just not used to that. And I get it. It, you know, it sucked being in that position and having all those restrictions growing up. But now that I'm older, I, I obviously understand. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I don't know that I agree with it, but I definitely understand where he came from and why he had, why he did the things that he did. And so when it came time for college, I applied everywhere. But ultimately, it was like, well, you can stay in like stay at home and go to the local university, which was a state university. And it was great, but I didn't want to do that. None of my friends stayed home. Everyone went off to these big, you know, UC universities or like Ivy League colleges. And that's what I wanted to do. What, where, where, where'd you grow up? In Fresno. Oh, okay. Yeah. I spent most of my time in Fresno. So like a few hours from any of those options, at least. Exactly. A few hours, which meant I would, I would not be living at home. Yeah. And that was like the thing that was the kicker for my dad. So it was like, either you stay at home and go to the local university, or you move down to Orange County, live with your aunt and uncle and drive an hour to a UC, which would, you know, it was a bigger university. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to totally live with aunt and uncle and drive. And Auntie and uncle at that time had three young children. They're all now, mashallah, grown and, you know, in their careers. But uh, at that time, they were super young. And so it was like three little kids running around and living with aunt and uncle and commuting an hour and wanting to have this freedom, but not being able to because it's my dad's younger brother that's essentially taking care of us. So with that, I feel like my grades suffered. I was a straight A student all throughout high school. Super easy for me to do that. When we got to college, uh, my sister was already there at the university and living with my aunt and uncle as well. So I knew exactly what I was going to do. I was going to live there and we would go to school together and we did. And my grades suffered, you know, and whether it was just first year being at a big university, whether it was, you know, the fact that it was just something so new or the lack of concentration at home or the commute or just whatever it was. I did extremely poorly in college my first year. I had something like a, I don't know, a 2.4 GPA. It was just, it was not, it was not good. And did you know at that point that you wanted to do something medical? Yeah, I I did because my family, um, I come from a family of physicians. And so that was some, that was kind of an expectation, but luckily for them, I also was interested in it and I was interested in the health. Uh, profession. I didn't necessarily want to be a physician because I saw how busy my father was and I, I didn't want that kind of life. So I was trying to think like, what can I do? I'm good at science. I'm terrible at everything else, or at least I thought I was. I was always super hard on myself. And so I knew that the healthcare profession was what I was going to do, but I just didn't know what. So at that point, I did so poorly and I knew I couldn't get anywhere with those grades. And it was just kind of a moment where someone who, and I'm, I'm a perfectionist. I'm a type A personality. I let go big time that first year. And it just was a rude awakening. And I realized, okay, this is not me. This doesn't feel good. I know that this is not going to get me to where I want to be. And at that point, my only option was to move back home because I felt like I would have more focus, more attention. I would feel more comfortable. I kind of felt like there were too many distractions in in Orange County. And you know, I have to say as an 18-year-old, you are so smart and that was so prudent because at 18, I literally remember 
it feeling like college was the biggest deal. It was all that mattered. People's opinions were all that mattered. But now in my mid-30s, I'm like, huh? Like, I don't even remember undergrad. So I'm so glad you had that that prudence to just do it, which I'm sure was terrifying at that age. It was exactly. That's the thing. And you're so right. I mean, I I did have that prudence, but at the same time, I was so scared. I was so humiliated. I, w- yes. I was embarrassed. You know, I felt like, oh my God, all of my friends, like, what are they going to think? Like, I'm a loser. I fail. You know, like all these terrible things. And um, and it took a toll on me because I ended up moving back home and I went to the local university, which is an incredible university. It got me into every grad school I applied to. So, you know, there it wasn't like it was any consolation there, but I went to the local university I would go to school and I would go straight back home and I would sit and study. And I don't recommend that. I, I think you should have a life. I think it's a t- it's a period of growth and development. But that first year when I came back home, I was embarrassed and I just, I didn't want to see anyone. I didn't want to socialize. So I ended up getting my stuff together. You know, I, I rocked that first year back. The smaller classroom sizes were so important for me and I didn't realize it. When I was at the UC, I got lost in a, in a classroom of 500 students. I felt like, okay, no one's holding me accountable. I can get away with not showing up or not doing what I'm supposed to. But in these smaller classroom sizes, I realized firsthand, oh my God, this is so important. I sat in the, you know, in the front of the classroom usually. I made eye contact with the professors. I would engage with them afterwards. And I felt like your typical quote unquote nerd because <laughs> that was like a word at the time. But I, it felt good. It felt good to be the highest grade in the organic chemistry class. Like those Mm -hmm. things felt good. And I realized, wait, if this feels so good, like why wouldn't I do this all the time? And so I did. And I did really, really well. I graduated summa cum laude um, from the university in my major. And also my social life kind of expanded after the first year of just kind of putting my head down and, and getting back to work and feeling like I was worth something anymore. So that is the interesting part. When I applied to grad schools, obviously I was worried. I thought, oh my God, they're going to look at that first year and say, what the heck did this girl do? Like, we'll never accept a student with, you know, a a year of 2.4 GPA. But I think what they loved was my story. And I think that that's super important is when you show growth, when you show improvement, when you show that you've learned something. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was a huge focal point of like my application. And I really think we should stop and just talk about that for a second because I think people don't realize that when they're putting together applications. And this is for undergrad, for graduate school, even for a job. People are yes. looking for a story and there has to be a story arc and it has to add up. One plus one has to equal two. So you not doing well and then doing well, then graduating top of your class, like that is a story and you probably had some sort of experience along the way and you figured out, oh, I should volunteer at this clinic or do this philanthropic work and I'm going to tie my story around that and it's going to be linear. And I think people don't realize that. They kind of throw their experience at a wall, close their eyes, hold their breath and hope it sticks. And they don't realize it's all storytelling. You just have to tell a story that checks out. Absolutely. You have to tell a story that checks out. You cannot be afraid of what's happened. You have to take the next step as if it was your first and just keep moving forward. You know, like if I held that against myself, my first year against myself the entire time, I don't know what I would have done. And for me to be saying this, and especially now as an adult, I look back and I think of what I did, how I was able to do that and how I was able to mentally overcome it. 
I'm in awe of myself. Like it's mm-hmm. only in moments like these where I sit and we, you know, I talk about, it. I don't talk about this very often, but like in a podcast or something like this, an interview and, you know, I, I reflect on what I was able to do. I think, man, wow. Like how, so how empowering was that for me to be able to just set it aside, say, okay, that was year one this is a new year or this is a new day or this is a new opportunity. And I think that's really important for people in general, whether they're in, you know, applying to colleges or grad schools or even jobs. I think that's super important. I I couldn't agree more because honestly, I wasn't that good of a student in undergrad either. I actually have a very similar story where my first year I was lost and didn't know what I wanted to do. And only after my second year, when I decided I wanted to go to architecture for grad school, not only did I excel, I like, I like killed it. I went from being very average to being very smart very quickly with a little bit of focus. And I went to calculus. I remember crushing calculus and really similar to that story about, oh, I felt good being the best student in OCHEM. Like that's how I felt about calculus. That's how I felt about physics. But it really took me a while to get there. And I literally envisioned myself in my first class with 500 people also at a UC, just like, what is happening? And I did, yes. not, did not do well. I just was not for me. And, you know, as, as my story progressed, I went and got two masters in architecture and it was always the front row center person who was gladly and happily and proudly top of her class both times around. But I very much Aww. had that pivotal moment where I was like, it, it took me a, a minute to get there. And frankly, it took me failure to get there. Like I did not do well my first year. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And by the way, after this podcast episode, I'd love to just talk to you about your career because I think that sounds awesome. Everybody knows I work really hard, but it's so funny. My, my social media is so just like... Uh, uncurated, but also there's no story. So I'm kind of my own, my own like advice I'm not taking. It doesn't really talk about what I do day to day. It's like, here's some pretty flowers. Here's my kid doing something funny. And so nobody knows exactly what it is, but they have like a sense of it. So this podcast has been cool because I've had an opportunity to actually talk about what I do day to day, which has been exciting because I I freaking love my job. I love what I do. I love building a company. I was just telling Hadi like an hour ago, I want to do this for the rest of my life. I just want to you know, like I love it. Building growth stage companies is so exhilarating to me. That's just, I mean, but people like you thrive off a certain level of stress in a good way, like this energy, you know? And so I, I mean, I admire that. I think that's incredible, but yeah. So I, I, and I couldn't agree with you more. I think failure is such an important part of this process. And I, I feel like my entire life, I've always done things that felt safe that I knew I would excel at, that I I went for the things that I knew I was good at and that I would rock. And it's only been in the last, I don't know, 15 years, I think that I've really had the wherewithal to be like, you know what? I got to get out of my comfort zone. I got like, what I've done to this point was a lot and it was hard, but I hit a wall and I realized that one of the most important things in life is to get out of your comfort zone. I'm a perfectionist. I don't like failure. I don't. And I would always say this growing up, like, well, I haven't failed at anything. I haven't failed at anything. And then when it hit, that was the pivotal moment of growth. It was just exponential, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's very scary, especially for someone like me who doesn't like to fail, who, you know, is just afraid of that. It's my only fear. I say that all the time. I will eat a cider. I have jumped out of a plane. I, I cannot fail. It terrifies me. It's and it's wild. It terrifies me. But it's only now that I'm like, you know what? It scares me. That means I have to do it. It scares me. It's out of my comfort zone. I have to try. I have to do it. 
and this is something so silly and it's so stupid, but I'm going to say it. Um, just, I haven't worked out hard all week and I'm a very physically active person, but I haven't worked out hard, uh, the way I normally would. And I want to say about a week ago, there was, um, my husband's been telling me go to this outdoor gym. It's, you know, there's class sizes are super small. Everything's outdoor. It's isolated. It's, it's great. It's like the perfect setup. And so I was like, okay, great, great. You know, I will, I will. And the thought of actually going and doing a hard workout, which I know I can usually do incredibly well, I knew I would not be doing very well. So that was like thinking, oh, I have to train before I go to this class because I don't want to not look good in this <laughs> class. And then set, which is ridiculous. And then the second thing was, I realized I was the only person signed up for the class. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I don't want to do it. I don't want that kind of attention on me. That was on a Friday. I spent all weekend thinking about what a cowardly act that was. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm so uncomfortable with the thought of the trainer focusing only on me and me not doing up to my normal potential because I know how well I can do, but I know how poorly I'm going to do. And I just, I couldn't get that thought out of my head. So that Monday I signed up for the class again and I was the only person in the class and, and it was wonderful. It was fine. Like I did it and I didn't do great, but I survived and it was fine. And I'm like, why, like, why do I sit there and do this to myself? Like, I feel like a lot of us do this to ourselves. Definitely. Um, are, are you a type three Enneagram? Oh gosh, I you know I'm really bad at. I have a good friend who's very good at these, but I I'm really bad at those. I'm not sure. I'm a type three, and I'm like a classic type three. And so much of what you're saying registers. If you do it, you have to let me know. Okay, I I might actually do it when we get off the call. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to know. Um, awesome. So I was just thinking about it in dental school. So for people that that are interested in dentistry, while I was in college, you know, everyone does like the typical things. They'll volunteer at places and get a sense of like what dentistry is all about. But I did those things, but I also had a mentor. And I think that's another thing that's super important. And I just kind of stumbled across this mentor just by chance. He was finishing up college when I started and he, I think, spoke at like a pre-dental club meeting or something. And so I thought, okay, you know, let me get his number down. And, and I, used him as a source of help and information. And I would reach out to him and he would tell me like, okay, there's a program at UCSF that you should apply for. It's a summer program. It's seven weeks long and it'll you know, be great on your resume. And in my mind the whole time, again, I'm applying and I'm thinking there's no way I'm going to get in. They're going to look at that first year, really low GPA, and no one's going to accept me. They only accepted seven students and I was one of them. So that was like incredible. Mm. That was a great um, look on my resume. And then something else that I did was another summer program. This time, I think it was three months. And the, the same thing, my mentor told me, you know, apply for this one. This is also what I did. I literally just followed his footsteps. I did everything that he said he did. And he graduated from the same university. And um, I, again, when I applied for that program, I thought there's no way I'm going to get in. Of course, I ended up getting in. And I was super happy and it beefed up my resume even more. I got works published. So everything ended up coming together and it made my grad school application have this beautiful story arc, like you were mentioning earlier. I mean, it was just, it was a wonderful story. People, when they read it, they didn't forget it because it was like, wow, this girl did so poorly, but she ended up 
you know, ending it on a really high note. So uh, I think that's important for anyone that's interested in dentistry. If you can find a mentor, I think that's wonderful in, in dentistry or in any career. If you can find a mentor, someone that's doing what you want to do, ask them, probe them, you know, have them help you do research on your own and then go to them with intelligent questions and, you know, find that path. And um, yeah. I couldn't agree more. And actually, one of the pieces of advice that I give to people is when they're kind of like, oh, I'm not sure what I want to do. I'm like, go scan the internet, find somebody mm-hmm. you want to be, get in touch with them, ask them what you would do differently if you should do differently because you're so impressed by their work and effectively want to be them. And you'd be surprised how how quick people are willing to give back, especially with pointed advice. Reaching out to a mentor and just being like, hey, I think you're cool. That's not effective because if they're your mentor, it means they probably have worked really hard to get somewhere in life and don't have that time. But if you're really precise in what you want, people are so happy to help and give back because I certainly can look back and think of specific people who have helped me along my way. And I, I feel obliged to pay it forward. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I know many people listening to this might feel like, oh, you know, but I'm too shy. I'm too afraid to, to reach out or this fear of, of reaching out. But again, it's so important. It's so important to get out of your comfort zone. I had that mentor and then that was the last mentor I had for a very long time. And again, I felt like I hit a wall up until, you know, I'm, I'm a grown woman And up until about three years ago, I found another mentor who is also a periodontist. She's a female and she just, she's, she was right under my nose the whole time. And I knew it, but I was just hesitant to pick her brain. And there's no reason for that. I mean, when we finally sat down and had lunch and I picked her brain and talked about so many things, I realized why the heck did I not do this 10 years ago? Because it's been about 10 years that I've been looking up to this woman. So, you know, don't wait, don't hesitate, just get out there, get out of your comfort zone. That's awesome. I was recently chatting with a friend about how I actually don't have a mentor right now. And I started sending out feelers to people where I was like, hey, like, you know, do you know of a mentor for me? And I'm actually in the middle of that process (laughs) because I feel like I could probably use it. Um, I do see the benefit in it because I I give people mentorship all the time. And I would love for somebody to just be like, okay, Layla, here are the three things you really need to improve. Actually, so one thing I'm not good at, believe it or not, is, is talking on the fly. I'm excellent when I prepare. I mean, like before any panel, I act like I go in on the fly. I never do. I prepare my three anecdotes in advance. Like I always prepare my intro. So when I wanted to start the podcast, not only because do I feel like and know that our narrative is kind of as Muslims, um, and for me specifically, and for you as a Muslim woman has kind of been taken over by many parties, many of whom are, are not mm-hmm. Muslims or Muslim women. That, that was one of the reasons, but really one of the big reasons was I really wanted to learn how to talk like publicly, yeah. like on the fly and, and clearly. And I wanted to articulate and I wanted to be linear. And because I, like you, cannot do failure, I'm like, well, if I publish my voice and have these very, very, very rarely <laughs> edited interviews, then I need to learn how to talk fast. And actually, I'm on like, what, podcast four or five at this point? I don't know how many I'm on, but I'm pretty early in the process. And it's already, uh, I would say it's already paid dividends. You are, I mean, you speak so fluidly, so eloquently, so linearly. Like, I am shocked that that would ever be an insecurity or a concern of yours. Um, So, wow. Yeah. I think you are incredible. (laughs) Thanks. I I love the direction of this podcast. I love where this is headed. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm trying to think what else I can give in terms of uh, dentistry. I I guess I could tell you how I ended up specializing. 
I would love to learn how you ended up specializing. And then I want to know what you would have done differently, if anything. Okay. In terms of specialty, I, so in college, I, once I had finally moved back, I knew that I was going to do something in medicine and I had gone to my dentist and he said that on my lower front tooth, like I was, I had some recession. My gum was kind of shrinking away from my tooth. And now that I know everything I know, it's because of orthodontics and genetics. And so at that time I didn't know any of this obviously, but he referred me to a periodontist. So I saw a periodontist at age 19. And when I saw this guy, um, he was very nice. And he essentially told me, okay, you need a gum graft, but not only on just this one tooth, but literally from molar to molar on your lower teeth, like your entire lower arch. And we're going to take that tissue from the entire roof of your mouth. And I thought, this is wild. I can't believe that you're telling me this, but there's something about it that sounds so cool. So yes, let's do it. Let's go. So in that surgery, and I, I don't even know how I convinced my dad that this was necessary and that I needed to do it, but he didn't even, I remember he didn't even come with me to the appointment. I mean, I was, I was 19 years old and I just went home and was like, daddy, this is, this is what I need to do. And this is how much it's going to cost. And, and he, he was great and he was supportive and on board, but I ended up having all four wisdom teeth taken out and this gum graft from molar to molar using my own tissue from the roof of my mouth. So I've got stitches all across the bottom gums, and then I've got an open wound on the roof of my mouth and all four wisdom teeth taken out. I was a chipmunk, but I thought, this is so cool. Like this is surgery, but, and it's real, like it's real surgery. Like you're cutting and you're sewing and, you know, you're doing these things, but it's not on a life or death situation. Like it's not on a grand scale. It's like on a, on a mini scale. And there was something so appealing to me about that. I thought, oh my God, this is so cool. I could, I could see myself doing this. I'll feel like a, you know, a a badass and, you know, do surgery, but really it's like not that big of a deal. It's like, it's oral surgery. It's great. And you can help people. It's a big deal. Somebody who's had my fair share of, you know, walking into walls. It's a big deal. It is. It, it actually is. I think I was just so excited about the, the prospect of finding a career path that I don't even remember anything negative about the surgery. And to this day, it's <laughs> my most common procedure. I do three or four of them a day. It's an honor to be treated by you, I read. So, you know, (laughs) clearly Um, an honor. But yeah, so that was it. That was my, um, I thought, you know, as soon as I I went through that experience, I was like, I want to do dentistry, but not general dentistry. I want to become a periodontist. I went into dental school wanting to become a periodontist. And then halfway through dental school, I met my husband and we ended up getting married really quickly. And after I got married, I got really lazy and I thought, uh, maybe I don't have to do perio. Maybe I can just learn to do general dentistry and be happy with it. And I graduated my dental school and then I did a one-year general practice residency to try to become better at general dentistry because I kind of shifted gears all of a sudden in dental school. And halfway through my general practice residency, I realized I didn't enjoy it. And I just kept thinking about perio and surgery. So then I finished that general practice residency and I decided once again to step out of my comfort zone, feeling like there's no way that I was going to get in. I applied to perio programs, but I only applied to two programs in Southern California. 
And each of those programs only accepted two candidates per year. And I thought, again, there's no way that I'm going to get in, but I'm just going to apply and let's just see what happens. And lo and behold, I got into UCLA's program, first Muslim female. I was the, I was the only female at one point with you know two candidates per year. It's a three-year residency. Wow. And so I'm surrounded by all these guys and, uh, and it was, it was great. It was fun. I felt like a boss and finished my three years and got out. And then it's like the push is, okay, you have to open up your own practice. You have to open up your own practice. And the opportunity came to open up my own practice. And I felt like if I turned it, I wasn't ready mentally, physically, emotionally, financially, but the opportunity presented. And I thought, okay, if I don't take this opportunity, I'm going to regret it. And that's one of my biggest fears is regret. So I decided to do it. And I opened up my own practice from scratch in Santa Monica, a highly saturated uh, community. And uh, it was great. It was so successful from day one. You know, the, the patients just kept coming in, the support from the general dentists in the community, because as a specialist, I'm relying on the generalist to refer patients to me, mm-hmm. but the support from them was so fantastic. I mean, it was awesome. But after about a year and a half of doing that, I realized that I went to sleep, I woke up, I ate, and I breathed perio. And I did not love that. I, I wanted... I worked this hard to have freedom. And I realized for me, not with, you know, most people don't feel this way, but for me, I felt like I didn't have the freedom. I felt handcuffed having my own practice. And so it was a very, very, again, difficult decision, very reminiscent of me having to leave after my first year of school at a big university. I felt like a failure even though nothing happened, this was purely my own decision, but it was almost like I couldn't take the heat. And so I was walking away from this, but my gut just told me I would be so much happier, not owning my practice, but just working with a group. And I walked away. I just one day came to the office and I said that this isn't, I don't want to do this anymore. And I called my husband, I called Shahab and I was like, you know, I don't think I want to do this practice anymore. This was just before I was about to sign a 10 year lease agreement. And uh, he was like, don't do it. If you don't want to do it, why, why would you even you know, think twice about it? Absolutely not. Don't do it. And that was it. I hung up the phone. I told my office manager. We started writing letters to the patients. And the, the second phone call and the third phone call after my husband were two practices right around the corner that were really supportive of my, of my practice. And there were group practices and I called them and I said, you know, I just wanted to thank you for your guys' support. You know, you've been so supportive and helpful and, you know, sending me your patience. I appreciate your trust, but I'm closing my practice down for, you know, these reasons. And uh, both practices were like, oh my God, we don't want to lose you. Come join our practice. So before I even closed down my practice, Mm -hmm. I had had a job. Exactly. (laughs) And so, you know, it just, that's another thing I've, I've always followed my gut. And it was such a great thing for me going against the grain here because all throughout my perio um, residency, it was like, you have to open your practice. You're nothing if you don't open your practice. And I was so embarrassed to say I closed down my practice, which everyone knew that I had opened. I was teaching at UCLA at the time. So everyone knew I'd opened up my practice. Everyone knew that it was risky. Everyone told me I couldn't do it. And then when that came to fruition, it was a really hard pill to swallow. But I look back on that and I'm just so much better for it now that I did what I did. 
Yeah. What, what people don't understand, I think, looking from the outside in is that running a practice is a business and what you offer is a service, right? So suddenly yep. you're doing the service and the business yes. side and it's no joke. Like you yes. are filling the copy machines, you are making sure there's coffee, you're running payroll, you're making sure overtime is paid correctly. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And that's just something that, that those are responsibilities that I realized only after doing it that it was not something that I wanted to do. I didn't want those responsibilities. I just wanted to do my perio, do my surgeries, help my patients, and then go home and enjoy home. I wanted to, I realized I'd worked so hard all these years and now it's time for me. I've grown in my career and now it's time for me to grow on a more personal level with intentional things. So yeah, so here I am. Well, I'm excited to get into the personal level. Before we do that, let's do a really quick rapid fire. You ready? Hmm, No, but go. (laughs) (laughs) Texting or talking? Ooh, talking. Last song you downloaded? Um, Nothing Without You, Tannarelli. Favorite holiday? Oh, my God. Ooh. Don't have one. (laughs) All right. How long does it take you to get ready? (laughs) 15 minutes. On a scale of one to ten, how good of a driver are you? Ooh, ten. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> and alhamdulillah for all of us. Yes. Invisibility or super strength? Oh, um, super strength. Which one? Communication. <laughs> all right. Thanks for that. You're welcome. And that that's a good break for us to go into the less serious, um, well, I guess equally serious, but less academic side to your other personality because what blows me away about you is you have a pretty big following on Instagram. People are really taken by you. And I mean, I'm one of them. I love your photographs. I would love to meet Sahar outside of Wilshire Boulevard or wherever. I made that up, but Wilshire yeah. Boulevard is a very major street in Santa Monica. So I assume maybe you work around there. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I, I would love to meet Sahar outside of the office. Well, I do work right outside, uh, right off of Wilshire Boulevard. So you were not <laughs> off at all. Um, outside of the office, growing up, I was never a very proud Muslim. And I think that's because of maybe the negative media that I have seen about Islam my entire life. And I think I I didn't grow up around very many Muslims. And so I was just never comfortable with that identity until I got older. And now that I am so proud and I, of that identity and I relate to it so much, you know, who I am outside of work, first thing is always I'm a Muslim. I just... I think that as a Muslim, there are certain things that we have in our character traits uh, that I like to emulate as a Muslim. So that's first and foremost. Um, Outside of that, I'm a wife that's both patient and impatient. You know, I have I have a great marriage, but even in that greatness, it took a pandemic to get my husband in the kitchen after 15 years of marriage. So that's where my patience comes in. I'm a daughter, a sister, an aunt, which tells you the love and the priority that I have for my family. And as we mentioned earlier, they live about four hours from me and my in-laws are a four hour flight away. And so, you know, we all do the best that we can. I try to be a very loyal friend. And there have been many times in the past that I've questioned, like, 
what I bring to the table in relationships because I'm not the funniest and I'm not the loudest, although I can be pretty loud. Um, and I'm not the organizer of gatherings or events. I'm not the chef of the group, although I love making jai for my guests, you know, when they come over. I'm not the most talented and I'm not the most creative. But what I realized is that I'm the effortless friend that communicates her feelings so that no one is ever in question about our status. I'm really good at being a good friend. I'm really good at being a loyal friend, a supportive friend. As long as you don't mind that I forget your birthday, I'm a great friend. <laughs> uh, don't even get me started. I, I am a great friend on WhatsApp. The pandemic, one of the only things about it is it's made me a better friend because usually WhatsApp is my go-to. I'm like, this is great. I can just kind of knock yeah. in and out statuses. How are you doing? What's going on? And now that's the norm. So I've become a better friend, which I'm not mad about outside of how how obviously devastating this pandemic oh, is. So interesting. Yeah. And, and yeah, true. Exactly. And with this pandemic, everyone's got these emotional roller coasters that we're all going through and people just need to vent and they need to talk it out. And I am that sounding board. I'm that ear that listens. So outside of work, I feel like that's a little part of it. And then this whole social media, Instagram thing, it's just... It kind of happened by, I mean, it did happen by accident and it's still not something that I do as like a, as a routine or it's like, oh, it's, you know, five days have passed and I have to post or it's not like that for me at all. In the beginning, it was just kind of a, a fun thing to do, share photos and, and, you know, we travel a lot. So sharing like travel experiences and photos of things like that. But then I like real life hit. And I started to share emotions and I started to share feelings and thoughts. And it, it became an open diary of sorts. And I realized that for me, it was really therapeutic. It was therapeutic to write down my thoughts or in this case, type them out. And to also have so many people connect to them and relate to them. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that I needed the validation. It was the understanding that I'm not alone in this. Like I'm not alone in these feelings. And, and to me, that was really therapeutic going through, you know, personal struggles in these last few years. And I think it was really when I turned that on that, uh, the social media kind of took off. You know, I don't have such a large following, but I have a very strong following. I noticed that you can post anything and people are just like, yes, we love it. We stand. And I'm like, this is it's awesome. Incredible. So connected. It's incredible. You know, and I'm a very thoughtful person. You know, I like to think about things before I do them. I like to think about what I'm going to say before I do it. But like there, there was one day I came home from work and I mean, I was just like nasty. You know, I came home from work, I had my hair in a bun, like it just looked like I needed a shower. And I took a photo of myself and I can't remember what was the the impetus behind that, but I took a photo and I just wrote something. It was whatever was on my mind. It was just kind of like verbal diarrhea in a text form and I wrote it down in my notes and I was like, "Huh. Okay, that's real. Let me post that. And, it, you know, I just, I posted it and I don't really pay attention to what time I post or anything like that. And it just got so much love. And I thought, holy cow, like I look like I need a shower. I wrote whatever came to my head in that moment and it just got so much love and people related to it. And so I think that's really the driving force for me. Cause sometimes I'm just looking like, I just look at social media and I'm like, why, why am I on this thing? For what purpose? You know, but then 
so often I get these messages from people that are so inspiring to me, but they're saying that, you know, what I've done or what I've said has inspired them in some way or helped them in some way. And to me, that's just priceless. I think that's, that's what keeps me interested in this platform. And not to mention you have exceptional style. Like you, you are definitely one of those pages I go to and I'm like, Oh wait, I have a blazer. Why didn't I think of that? Like that looks really cool. So that, that doesn't hurt at all. Thank you so much for saying that. I appreciate that. (laughs) Although I will say this pandemic has got me so confused. I'm twisted. Literally. I have no idea what to wear anymore. I don't know how to put together outfits anymore. I know how to throw on my scrubs and I know how to throw on my sweats. So we got to, you know, work on that in 2021 again. (laughs) Don't even get me started. I have leaned into it. Like I'm at the point where, yeah, it's literally just sweatshirts and sweats every day, but make it fashion kind of, you know, you just put a really cool looking something on it. Yes. But I don't mind it. Yeah. I don't either. I'm, I'm very, very happy in the state. Yeah. And, and as, as a total side note, you also have exceptional skin. So as one of my actual, actually, I should have done, done this in lightning round. What is your skincare routine? This is so unrelated, but I have to know. Oh my God. It's so funny that you even ask this or people ask this. It blows my mind because my entire life, I've always complained about my skin. My entire life, I've complained about my skin. <laughs> and I even have an aunt who growing up, would tell me, like, you know how ethnic aunties, they're very, like, very straightforward about, oh, you know, why, how come your skin broke out? Or how come you've gained five pounds? Or you're too skinny, you know, like, they'll tell you. Um, So this aunt in particular, she would always tell me, stop eating peanuts and stop eating chocolate because your skin is breaking out. And that's what will help your skin. And it was just, it was such a low point for me is my skin. Um, because I didn't always have good skin. I had, I had acne growing up. It wasn't terrible, like cystic acne, but it was, it was there. And I was always self-conscious of it. And even my brother-in-law up until about four years ago, maybe five years ago, he would joke around with me and he would say, you know, are you guys coming to visit us and make sure you don't, you don't come with any pimples on your forehead. Like just because I would always have breakouts on my forehead and I would complain about them. You know, I was very vocal about it. So it's interesting that anyone even asks that, but I think it was when I got diagnosed with Crohn's back in 2017, I changed my diet. I completely changed my diet and I've just been eating so much cleaner since then, really focusing on anti-inflammatory foods. I've always been really good at hydrating myself. So I'm, you know, I drink lots of water. That's really all I drink is water. Every now and then I'll have a coffee because it tastes good or I'll do smoothies, but you know, I think diet and lifestyle are a big part of it. And outside of that, I just, I, now I'm really focused on clean products because I'm going through a fertility journey that there's certain ingredients that are endocrine disruptors. So I'm always looking for clean products and it's not one thing in particular. I have like, I'm literally looking at my uh, vanity right now and I'm looking at the things that I have and it's just all clean ingredients. I change it up every day. I'll do like something different. Uh, but it's within the same like four or five products. I use a glycolic acid, I'd say about once or twice a week to just take that dead layer of skin off my face so that the hydrating products are absorbed well. And that's it. I mean, I haven't had a facial in like five years, I want to say, and I think I'm overdue for that. I don't know if that answered your question. (laughs) No, I'm out here like literally Googling Amazon and glycolic acid, filling my card up. (laughs) Amazoning clean, clean pantry. You're so cute. 
It was it was honestly so wonderful having you here. Before I say goodbye, uh, give me some plugs. Where can people find you? Plug, plug. You know, you could find me on Instagram. That's that's where you can find me um, on a social media platform. So it's Dr. Sahar Shafi. It's D-R-S-A-H-A-R-S-H-A-F, like Frank, I. Um, and so that's my Instagram. And then if you would... Hopefully you don't need to see me as a patient, but if you did, I've got two practices that I work out of in Santa Monica and they're both fantastic practices and they both happen to be in the same building. So <laughs> competing practices, um, but both wonderful. And so if you just uh, Google me, you can find my practices in Santa Monica. I, I don't wish this upon myself, but I have no doubts I will walk into a wall sometime soon and I will see you at your practice. I look forward to it, minus the walking into the wall part based on your Yelp reviews. <laughs> I, I really hope, I really hope you don't need to see me, but yes, I am always here anytime you need. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for joining and thank you all for tuning in. I'll see you all next week. Thank you. Bye.